0: The National Archives podcast series, Sedition, Transportation and Treason, The Case of the London Corresponding Society. Presented by Chris Barnes. In this talk, I'm going to be using examples from one particular record series. That's HO 42, Home Office 42. The reason for this is we've been fully cataloguing this series in a project aided by the Friends of the National Archives. And so if you do join the Friends, which I hope you will, This is the sort of assistance you'll be giving our work here with the records. So what is HO42? The incoming domestic letters, handbills, reports and memos in HO42 constitute key data from the transition between amateur and professional local government in the reign of King George III. The documents which make up this series show the main concerns of local government with the activities of a rising, urbanising and often suffering population. They describe in some detail key local factors regarding crime, law and order, riots and disturbances, and poverty and the poor laws. Although the records start in 1782 and go up to 1820, it's the period of the 1790s which provide the greatest interest. The reason for this is that for the most of the 1700s, Britain had been in, at worst, a state of war, and at best, a state of deep antagonism with the French. But following the revolution of 1789, there was a real danger that we could again be at war with France, and possibly the subjects of an invasion attempt. Fear of anything French was rife, fear of rebellion was everywhere, and worry about how the government would feed the population should our ports be placated makes up a great deal of this correspondence. The Friends of the National Archives gave us financial assistance in order to digitise this correspondence of the 1790s. This enabled us to produce coloured digital copies of the correspondence, which provided remote access for 30 to 40 volunteers who then catalogued the correspondence. The assistance will also enable us to link the digital images directly to the descriptions in Discovery, our new catalogue, giving free access to the images to researchers from all around the world. And for that we must give our friends uh, thanks to the Friends of the National Archives. The records are currently available on digital microfilm, which are very poor quality copies made over 20 years ago. The current catalogue view for the uncatalogued pieces is letters and papers, which isn't very helpful. What we're planning to do is provide itemised listings for the pieces, which is providing Lots and lots of searchable text, which is giving us a wealth of information about names, places and information. I've been using this newly catalogued and searchable material to research a group of men who, following on from the lead of the French, began to discuss the possibility of a change in the way Parliament was run in this country, with a view to annual elections, universal suffrage and the reallocation of seats to areas with no representation. Thomas Paine's Rights of Man. Written in 1791... In response to Edmund Burke's critical reflections on the revolution in France, Paine defends such seditious principles as popular rights, national independence, revolutionary war and economic growth. But what makes this book so important is that it was written in a very clear and concise manner. It was to be understood by the layman, not used in complex political debates. To this end, many cheap penny editions were produced and reprinted by independent radical publishers with 200,000 being sold by the end of 1793, many ending up in the pockets of the working classes. A copy certainly ended up in the possession of this man, Thomas Hardy, who founded the London Corresponding Society in 1792. John Thelwall was to become the group's main orator, often attracting crowds of over 500 people to his lodgings to hear him speak on a weekly basis. John Horne Tuck was the firebrand of the group. A former priest who trained as a lawyer, he was also a member of the Society for Constitutional Information. The Society for Constitutional Information had been in existence for over 20 years by 1792 and was the main vehicle for the talk of reform for the upper classes. Their group had members of both Houses of Parliament, doctors, surgeons and lawyers. What made the London Corresponding Society different was that they saw themselves very much as a sans-culottes of Britain. They were tradesmen and as such they met in the pub. This was the notorious Crown and Anchor pub in The Strand, which was already getting a reputation as a meeting place for radicals and features in many, many cartoons from the period. Eating and drinking in the pub was the normality for many tradesmen, but it was this mix of the socialising of eating and drinking in the pub with politics and economics which marked the corresponding society out as different. They made their first revolution that their numbers shall be unlimited, as they wanted to break down the old-held belief that politics was exclusively a preserve of the rich. They also changed the way that political societies conducted their membership by only charging a penny to attend their meetings, making it available for all. The membership money that they got was used to fund the printing of their campaign material. Their first meeting of the society, held in January 1792, attracted six members. Their second meeting, they'd expanded exponentially to nine, And then they had 16 by the 3rd, but they were away. By April 1792, they produced their first pamphlet. This set out their policies to the nation, and they also wrote out their charter. Resolved, that this society do express their abhorrence of tumult and violence, and that as they aim at reform, not anarchy, but reason, firmness and unanimity are the only aims they themselves will employ, or persuade their fellow citizens to exert against the abuses of power. At this point, the Corresponding Society had entered into correspondence with similar societies around the country, mainly in Manchester and Sheffield. You'll note that Manchester and Sheffield, by this point, had no direct political representation. Therefore, the spread of political ideas was directed towards this aim. The Corresponding Society also agreed that once their group had got too big, they should subdivide into separate divisions. This was so that everybody who attended the meetings should get a chance to be involved. Each of the divisions then elected a delegate to sit on an executive committee, which met on Thursdays, to discuss their group's diverse weekly business. This increased involvement in politics from the masses, and the potential for unlimited expansion was beginning to make the government nervous. In fact, the government did not react well to the lower classes beginning to get so involved with politics. And on the 21st of May, the King published the Royal Proclamation on Seditious Writing and Tumult. This directed the population to guard against any attempts at sedition and to alert the government should any such writings appear in their area. As local government was still in its infancy, this system of human intelligence coming in from around the country was heavily relied upon to the government to get a picture of what was happening in the provinces. The Royal Proclamation produced a massive importing of correspondence, which makes up the bulk of HO42. To the public, supporting the government was considered normal and British. Therefore, anything that was against the government was not normal and therefore not British. This correspondence can be split into two loose categories. The useful and the otherwise. Many letters contain little of note. Written anonymously by people called A Lover of Liberty or Britannicus. Announcing that they heard two men speaking French on a coach in Swindon. Or there was a suspicious character by the docks in Portsmouth. Thankfully, some people did report something of note. The Mayor of Dorchester reports a uh, seditious pamphlet being put up in the post office in town. Which is a reproduction of a letter by Thomas Hardy which just goes to show the nationwide dissemination of the London Corresponding Society's material. Other letters report such things as a vicar in Birmingham who had his house burnt down because he was suspected of being the writer of seditious materials and he'd allegedly fled to France. Finally, one of my favourite letters here from a man called Crawford who announces that he heard a man uttering such shocking and diabolical expressions, sir, that I cannot commit them to paper. The London Corresponding Society did not react well to this militancy as they felt that they were doing nothing wrong. The Royal Proclamation seemed to give the magistrates and the Bow Street Runners a free rein in piling up pressure against them. They claimed that certain magistrates were stumbling over the brothels, the gaming houses and the receptacles of public degradation fostered under their wing, who dared to threaten harmless publicans with putting a stop to their licences if they admitted into their houses any sober, industrious body of tradesmen. But who was right? Were the London Corresponding Society harmless or were they to be feared by the government? Is there no smoke without fire? Certainly as the popularity of the society grew, it was harder to keep tabs on just who was attending their meetings. As the London Corresponding Society was a radical society, it's easy to assume that more radical people were attracted to them, certainly men who had more violent and radical tendencies than the man who initiated the society in the beginning. Or certainly if you have a man like John Thelwell who's preaching democracy to 500 people on a weekly basis. Isn't it easy to put violent and revolutionary thoughts subliminally into their minds? Or is writing letters to societies in Manchester and Sheffield the harmless spread of ideas? Or the first step towards nationwide organisation and the beginnings of a revolution? To the corresponding society, there seemed the need to be more transparent. As they understood that the Royal Proclamation had inflamed the population against them. Fairly soon... After the Royal Proclamation, they noticeably changed the tact of their publications. Instead of being driven by their doctrine, they became defences of their conduct. And you start to see them producing titles such as reformers, not rioters, where they reinforced their loyalty and claimed that expressing delight at the downfall of an absolute monarch and popery in France was not the same as wanting to kill the King of England. They wrote a letter to Dundas, the Home Secretary, in December of 1792, asking for more greater protection, that their meetings be no more disturbed or interrupted by the saucy interference of usurped authority, by men unarmed, working with threats upon the fears of uninformed publicans and boasting secret orders and warrants. Unfortunately for the corresponding society, the month after that, saw Louis XVI lose his head, which was quickly followed by a formal declaration of war. Now, to the government... The London Corresponding Society was no longer supporting democratic idealism, but the enemy. And they now had even less time and patience for the English Jacobins. The problem for the government was to distinguish between the real threat of the Corresponding Society from the public hysteria of war. Dundas certainly believed that the talk of peaceful reform was pretense. He was of the opinion that if they ever achieved their aim of universal suffrage, that they would simply vote for a republic. But how to know their intentions for sure? The government began a system of surveillance against the London Corresponding Society. Spies had been used informally for many years, usually to gather information on foreign people of interest, such as diplomats. The post office had also been involved with intercepting the mail of such people. For this period, the interception of mail was known about, but not very well documented. For the later 1790s and beyond, what the post office found and kept is documented in Home Office 33. But like the domestic correspondence in H.O. 42, which was coming into the Home Office, this was one of the few ways the government had to gather information. Two pieces of legislation helped the government spy on the London Corresponding Society, although these were not designed with this function in mind. The first was the Middlesex Justices Act of 1792, which created 21 new magistrates for London, each with a team of constables and runners. One of the main remits of these magistrates was to keep an eye on potential troublemakers in London, this included suspected French émigrés. There were a lot of legitimate French émigrés in London at the time. But the government thought it would be easy for a man to claim he was being a French émigré when really he was spying for the French. The magistrates reasoned that as the London Corresponding Society was supporting the French, or seeming to, that they too came under this broad umbrella. One of these newly created magistrates was a man called William Wickham, who set up a large ring of informal and casual spies. Using the skills he developed in London, he went on to become key in government intelligence, operating out of Switzerland in the Napoleonic War. The second piece of legislation was the Alien Registration Act, 1793, which meant that all foreign nationals coming into the country had to register at their port of entry. This also set up the Alien Office, who had... In their remit, the go-ahead to begin surveillance on suspected individuals. Thus, they began the first semi-official secret service. Not much is known about these individuals. The records are patchy, as the early alien office records do not fully survive. And the spies and informants' jurisdiction was not entirely alien office, not entirely home office, some parts foreign office, so the records are therefore scattered. Many are also referred to via initials, D, as I desired D to attend, This is probably a man called Dower, but that's just my guess. It's hard to tell for sure. There are other names of men who crop up who were planted in divisions of the London Corresponding Society, but quite quickly found out, such as a man called George Munro, who was a Bow Street runner, who only reported once before being found out. George Lynam was the only successful agent that you can find. Brought in from Birmingham by William Wickham, he reported on the Corresponding Society for over a year. It was from these informants that the government heard plans for a national convention of the various corresponding societies which was to be held in Edinburgh in order that societies from all around the UK may pull towards a common goal of achieving parliamentary reform. The government had seen what the national convention had led to in France and was understandably concerned. In an attempt to nip the idea of a convention in the bud they arrested Thomas Muir who was the leading member of the Society of the Friends of the People in Scotland and it was his idea the convention. He was the leading irritant for the Scottish authorities and sentenced on the 13th of August to 14 years' transportation for sedition as a result of publishing the works of Payne, who he was close to. The Reverend Thomas Fish Palmer was arrested and sentenced a month later, again for sedition. Unperturbed by the arrest of these two influential men, a second attempt at organising a national convention was started. The London Corresponding Society elected the other two men, Joseph Gerald and Maurice Margro, to be their delegates for the convention. And they duly went on their way to Edinburgh, arriving in Edinburgh on the 7th of November. They were arrested on the 5th of December and put on trial in Edinburgh under charges of sedition. There was widespread condemnation that these trials were show trials. The charges were declared spurious, there was not ample chance for these men to defend themselves, and the sentences were considered illegal. Joseph Gerald was a trained lawyer, the son of a wealthy West Indian plantation owner. He defended himself at his trial and tried to get the sitting judge removed as he had evidence of the judge denouncing the idea of a national convention, Gerald therefore claiming that he'd already been prejudged. The judge dismissed his objection summarily, saying the insolence of your objection is swallowed up in the atrocity of your crime. The sentence, like I said, was considered to be illegal as there was no such sentence in Scottish law as transportation. The closest that they could get to was banishment, which would only mean, in that instance, banishment from Scotland. Their case was taken up in Parliament by a man called the Earl of Lauderdale, who was a member of the Society for Constitutional Information, who I mentioned earlier. They said that their sentence should be overturned, as, like I said, it was considered illegal. Unfortunately, these efforts met with no success, and these four men, along with another man called William Skirving, were sent to Australia on board the surprise transport ship. Joseph Gerald who was transported separately a few weeks later as he was too ill to be transported at the same time as the others. Whilst the so-called Scottish martyrs were awaiting transportation the leaders of the London Corresponding Society decided to make one more attempt at a mass British convention. A meeting was held at Chalk Farm to select delegates which attracted an alleged crowd of 4,000 who began to surround the house. The magistrates had been tipped off about this meeting by their informants and the presence of the magistrates was what caused the crowd to grow. John Thelwell and a man called Sinclair went to speak to the magistrates, mostly to work out whether the crowd was part of an intimidation tactic or simply there out of curiosity. Having spoken to the crowd from an upstairs window of the farm, Thelwell was able to get the majority of them to disperse, further proof used by the London Corresponding Society that they were men of reason, not violent. The government, however, did not agree with this assessment and began to work flat out, gathering information on the leading members of the Corresponding Society, which might lead to an arrest warrant. The report, drawn up by William Wickham, using information from two of his main informants, is in the Treasury solicitor's papers in TS11. This was produced just days before a mass arrest of the leaders of the Corresponding Society, and the seizure of all their papers, which included Thelwell, Horntock, and Hardy. The difference being, this time, the charge was not sedition, but treason. (coughs) The government had lost all patience and this time was going for the jugular of the society. The seized papers were presented to the House of Commons Committee of Secrecy, whose members included Dundas, the Home Secretary, Pitt, Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Duke of Dorset, who was formerly Ambassador to France, and the Earl of Salisbury, who was the Lord Chamberlain. Dundas went to the House of Commons after Hardy and Thelwell were arrested with evidence from these papers that they were plotting to subvert the whole Constitution. He was attempting to obtain a temporary suspension of habeas corpus in order to repress the remaining members of the London Corresponding Society. With such talk of revolution, few members of Parliament dared to speak up against Dundas and suspension of habeas corpus was granted. Due to the feeling in the House against the Jacobins and the fear produced by the suspension of habeas corpus, the Society of Constitutional Information was never to meet again. Now the government based their decision to push for treason on a loose interpretation of the treason statute, which was from the reign of Edward III, This stated treason as compassing or imagining the king's death. They were basing this, the prosecution, on a plot that they've uncovered by a splinter group of the London Corresponding Society, run by two men called John Franklin Philip Spence, who'd begun to purchase arms and drill at their houses in Lambeth and Battersea. They were arguing that there was a link between these increasingly militant members of the society at the bottom and the leadership of the society from above. If they could prove this to be the case, and that Hardy had directed these men to arm, then they could prove the seeds of a revolution, and therefore treason. It didn't help that the men who'd actually purchased the arms had testified before the Privy Council, saying that they'd only purchased these weapons so that they could learn to defend themselves in the event of a French invasion, and that nobody had told them to do it. Despite this, the prosecution ploughed ahead, and the trial of Thomas Hardy began on the 25th of October. It lasted eight days. The opening speech from the prosecution, Sir James Eyre, lasted nine hours, and they called over 90 witnesses to try and prove their case. Sir James Eyre said, Let us imagine ourselves this case. A few well-meaning men conceive that they and their fellow subjects labour under some grievance. They assemble peacefully to deliberate on the means of obtaining redress. Their numbers increase. Their discussions grow animated, eager and violent. A rash measure is proposed, adopted and acted upon. Who can say where this shall stop? and that these men who originally assembled peacefully shall not finally, and suddenly too, involve themselves in the crime of high treason. The problem for the prosecution was that they still had to prove the intention from the London Corresponding Society that they were planning to kill the King. The prosecution went on to resolve that any alterations in the representation of the people in Parliament or in the law for holding Parliaments can only be effected by the authority of the King, Lords and Commons in Parliament assembled. Therefore, it seems necessary to follow that a project of a convention which should have its aim the object of obtaining parliamentary reform without this authority of Parliament and therefore by inference without the authority of the King should be considered high treason in all the actors in it. I said, the prosecution called over 90 witnesses over the eight days to try and prove their point but it took the jury less than three hours to come back with a verdict of not guilty. John horne was tried second focusing on the production of these seditious texts. He himself stood up in court and said, yes, i produced these seditious texts, but this is sedition, you cannot construe it as treason. He too was found not guilty. John Thelwell was the third to be tried, focusing on his speeches and whether any of his words were treasonous. They even spoke of constructive treason, that his words could lead others to treason and therefore implicate Thelwell as the originator. These arguments could not however be made to fit the interpretation of the treason statute and he too was found not guilty. As the prosecution could not convict the top three members who they had the most evidence against, the remaining half dozen members of the society who were arrested were released without trial and their charges dropped. You actually find that when they were acquitted their carriages were carried through the streets. So what of the future for the London Corresponding Society? Well of the men transported to Australia Gerald who was very ill and had to be transported later died two years after arriving. Muir continued to protest that his sentence was banishment and therefore that he shouldn't be held in Australia and he actually succeeded in escaping via Argentina to France where he met up with pain and ended up dying there. Maurice Margro was actually the only one who saw out his sentence in Australia and returned to England where he continued to be a thorn in the side of the government until his death a few years later. And the society itself? Well, following the end of the trials, the Corresponding Society actually saw an upsurge in its popularity. Although Thelwell and Hardy withdrew from public life, the meetings continued. The government, however, decided to carry on trying to harass the society at every turn. They referred to Thowell and Hardy as the acquitted felons, which isn't very fair, and they kept many of their papers. A lot of them are still here in TS11 and the Privy Council papers. Suspension of habeas corpus was also increased for a further six months in February 1795. To protest against this, London Corresponding Society staged a mass rally at Copenhagen Fields in Islington, allegedly attended by up to 100,000 people. Knowing that they were clearly not going to defeat the Corresponding Society by prosecution, the government attempted to finish them off by legislation. Two acts were proposed, the Treasonable Practices Act and the Seditious Meetings Act. This made it easier for the government to prosecute authors of seditious texts and harder for groups such as the London Corresponding Society to meet as it put restrictions on the amount of people who can meet in one place at one time. The Corresponding Society limped on for a few more years until 1798 but membership had dwindled significantly since 1795 and these acts as many people were not prepared to risk the wrath of the government or even imprisonment just to talk about democracy. Although the Corresponding Society never achieved their aim of parliamentary reform, what they did achieve was nothing short of remarkable in three short years, from 1792 to 95, The amount of material they produced and distributed throughout the country was incredibly large for such a working class organisation. If you search within the catalogue of the British Library, you'll see many, many many pamphlets and tracts bearing their names. Also, with the amount of people attending their meetings and hearing John Thelwell speak and who had access to their printed materials, they certainly succeeded in opening up politics to the masses throughout the nation and laying the framework for it to be acceptable to be involved in politics and not a matter of treason, which was to be built upon in the 1830s and 40s by the Chartists in the fight for equality. Thank you for listening to me, and if you have any questions, I'll try and answer them. This event was recorded live on the 7th of June 2012 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved.